If you want to make things that make things better, have fun doing it, and learn to help yourself and everyone around you flourish, well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Enliven. This is the show where we explore what's possible and the people, the principles, and the practices that are going to help you build enlivening products and enlivening organizations. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and my guest in this episode is Muriel Clausen. Now, the first thing you need to know about Muriel is that she is super passionate about helping people and sees her mission in life as unlocking human potential to help everyone live a radically fulfilling life. That's something that she said to me one of the first times I ever met her, and she lives true to it, and I just love it. Muriel is an entrepreneur, she's a researcher, a speaker, and an advisor to governments and companies worldwide on how to create a better future of work. This is a big topic that's coming up all over the place. Her work has been featured in publications such as the Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, and Forbes. She speaks on the future of work globally with organizations including the World Bank, Singularity University, China's SAI Task Force for Innovation, the Milken Institute, United States Embassies, the Young Presidents Organization, and on and on and on. You get the idea. Muriel was also named a 2017 Game Changer by Women at the Frontier as an innovator in science and technology. Now, we cover a lot in this episode, largely around the future of work, like how to think about the future of work, what does that issue even mean, how should we think about reskilling, and how should one be uh, adaptive and ready for a changing future, how do we create working relationships that have candor and principles at their core and their foundation, how do we understand and communicate about our needs and our preferences, and, and in so doing, create fulfilling work environments, and much, much more. I think this is a fascinating conversation with one of my favorite humans. And I think you're really going to enjoy it. So without any further ado, please enjoy this conversation with the one and only Muriel Clausen. Okay, that's totally where we're going to start. So (laughs) officially, Muriel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to be here. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Of course. So you, we were, right before we were more, you, were just, <laughs> you were just telling me about how you and your co-founder love to yell the Bill O'Reilly do it live thing at each other. What, talk to me about that. What's up with that? Oh, if anyone hasn't seen it, you need to go on YouTube. So Bill O'Reilly, former news anchor, uh, early career. There's a great clip of him trying to film bumper recordings. And he becomes progressively more angry at the teleprompter and ends up just yelling, we'll do it live very aggressively. Um, but that has become anytime things are falling apart around our startup, that has become our joking thing that we shout, we'll do it live. So <laughs> and Andrew and I just had to, uh, we were just saying we better just do it live. <laughs> <laughs> we were trying to like come up with an interesting plan for the conversation. All the stuff is like, nah, screw it. We'll do it, we're just live. Do we'll it do live. We're going to do it live. <laughs> yes. And my, my co-founder it. is, uh, he's from South Korea. And he says that that is like the quintessential American clip for him that Bill O'Reilly shouting will do it live. Yes. So I don't know what that that? says about us. (laughs) (laughs) What about that? Like, if you ask him, what about that is the makes it like quintessentially American for him? I think it's the it's how he's, you know, doing the surface acting. He goes back into character and then he's like so angry again. And just this emotion and big energy. I think that's I think that's a stereotype we carry. Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen, but this is really, <clears throat> well, it's actually kind of related. Have you seen the, uh, the new documentary on Netflix called American Factory? I haven't. I need to see that. I'm very bad at watching television. <laughs> no, I'm, 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 same thing. I was just joking with somebody the other day how, how like media illiterate I am, especially when it comes to TV and, and movies. I'm just always months behind at, 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 a, exactly. you know, at the best. <laughs> yeah. And it's not, it's not something I'm proud of even. I, it's more that I just forget that that's an option and I'm like, what should I do right now? And I, it just never comes up in the list of things to do. 
<laughs> I don't know. You know what? That, that's probably, that's, I'm, I'm going to say writ large, that's probably a good pattern in your life. <laughs> Just having <laughs> known you for several years now, I'm guessing that's a good thing. Um, it's probably one of the reasons you're, uh, so engaged and prolific in all the things that you're doing. But the reason I, the reason I was thinking about the American factory thing was it's very relevant to the conversation we're, we're having today about the future of work. It's about a, a Chinese company buying and reopening a, a big American factory, an old GM plant in Ohio. Hi. And they talk a lot about the, uh, the, the cultural differences between, uh, for, for Chinese and American workers working together. And I was curious, like, cause I know you've done some work in China. Yeah. Um, what do, like, What's that been like, you know, as someone who pays very, very close attention to workplace cultures and people in the workplace? Like, what, what do you, what has stood out to you as you've explored uh, I, that in both of those cultures? Yeah. I mean, I, I love cultural differences. I think you see them in many, many small ways. I think the thing I'm always struck by though, especially when I was doing some work in China is how similar people are. That's always mm. the thing I come away with. Uh, I think people, think of China as this really, really different culture than the United States. But at the end of the day, you're there. Everybody's, you know, they get grumpy, they get hungry, they get happy, they laugh, they cry, you know, families are families, workplaces are workplaces. Um, the funny difference, though, that stood out to me is how we write contracts. So hmm. in the United States, so? we basically we hedge against negatives. And we explicitly say what those negatives could be. That is not how you write a contract in China. You, that's like bad luck for the company. That's a way to like shoot yourself in the foot and you can't have negatively worded things. That was the biggest difference I saw. Um, and there's other, there's other funny stuff like that, but it's only the little stuff like that. It's never the big things. It's never the big human things. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, but I, wait, I'm really curious. So how do you write a contract in China? It, with a lot of nuance. I'm glad I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing that takes an entire team of lawyers from both cultures. Yeah, it's just a different, yeah, it's a different way of even thinking about it, which is, it's fun. It's fun to think about. Uh, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, we, we really hedge against negatives in our culture. It's interesting. We're very Have comfortable you read with that. The, the, um, the culture map by Aaron Meyer. I haven't. Should I read it? I think you'd be very interested in it for, for a lot of reasons, including the China thing we were just discussing, but also given that you're, you have a lot of interest in workplace cultures and as we'll spend a lot of time talking about, like how you make, how you, how basically how people work together well and, and make that a great experience for everybody. But, uh, basically the reason I think you might be interested in that book is she, I think she's a professor at, and I always say this wrong. Is it INSEAD in, in Paris? Is that right? Oh, you know? sure. Yeah. Close enough. Yeah, sure. We'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> we'll go with that. <laughs> I always screw up how you say that, but it's a well, very well-known business school in France. And, um, she did this study and wrote a book about it, about how, um, different cultural factors, like the implicit things that are sort of below the surface affect working cross-culturally. So things like, um, power distance, um, how direct feedback is, um, high versus low context communication. So basically how implicit versus explicit are, you know, is the communication. Um, do people directly, are, are they confrontational in an explicit way or an overt way? Or is it, you know, avoiding, avoiding, uh, or do people avoid confrontation? Like all sorts of yeah. things like that. And then she sort of maps it across cultures. And so when you're working cross-culturally, you can look at that and see where you're going to have big differences in the way people approach a certain element of working together. And then you can hopefully get ahead of the problem. And I, I'm familiar with all of those ideas, and I think they're really true. I also think everything you just said is kind of tied to how we present, how we communicate, our preferences of how we act. 
And that's where I think the differences show up. I think latent traits that kind of unseen, I think humans are very similar across the board. Mm. And then it's when you say a latent trait, what, what do you mean like by the, that? The thing that's kind of hard to measure, that kind of unseen, you know, things around personality. I mean, we find that per, like big five personality, there's some fluctuation across cultures, but it's, it's pretty, I mean, there's more variation within a culture than between cultures. Um, mm. And yeah, I just think that, so that's where I think humans are deeply similar and we have all these really cool nuances of how we present that. And so the main thing I try to get people to focus on is not like what's different about cultures when you're working together, but just having competence and really communicating your preferences and where you're coming from and just like giving them the best opportunity to understand you. A lot of, a lot of communications cleared up when we do that. I've been thinking about communication a lot lately. We actually have a book we're working on around it. Um, and that's one of the ideas that's really helped me. Um, I read a book a while ago by Thich Nhat Hanh. I think he's in your neck of the woods, right? And it's art of communicating. And he talks about how communicating, um, he comes from a Buddhist perspective and he talks about how from his perspective, the role of communication is to reduce suffering. And we reduce suffering by giving someone a chance to be understood and by giving them an un- a chance to understand us. And I thought that was such a good idea. And, and I think that's like the, best, idea. the best tip to navigate cultural differences. Um, you know, I work super closely. I spend, 80 hours a week with someone from a different culture. And there's so many times we could misunderstand each other, but we have this beautiful relationship because we, we lean into that and we mm-hmm. give each other a chance to be understood and we give the other person every chance to understand us. I think that's beautiful. Actually, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about how you do that because I, having been a founder myself, I know how intense it is and, and the inter, the, the, the founding team dynamics are, that's a whole thing, right? Like the getting that right and getting that to work well is challenging. And I mean, it's like any relationship. It takes work and time and effort and energy and commitment and so on and so forth. But I'm really curious, like how, what have you found to be effective? Because in addition to all the normal stresses of doing a startup together, you also do have this cross-cultural difference. Um, so I'm curious, like what, are there any specific practices or, or ways that you, you make that work? Yeah, we have a few. Um, one of our, we have a few kind of, rules in general that we have with each other. So one, we've adopted that idea of radical candor and blinking the author right now. But that Kim book. Scott. Yes. Thank you. I knew you would know. You're on. He, he's it's a, one of my favorite books. It's over on my book. I can see it right now across great. the room. Yeah. So that idea. So we're very, we're, you know, we adopt that philosophy pretty um, universally. We also just give, I think we both take the responsibility to help the other person be open-minded. So this is a principle I actually got from Ray Dalio principles. There we go. Um, I, I another great you book. know, yeah, another great book. So there's this idea of like, it's important for us to be radically open-minded to be able to work with others effectively, all of that. But you also can communicate in a way that helps other people be open-minded with you. And we both have really worked on some of those things. So for example, um, like just, there's just some body language things that can completely convey a different message to someone. And we've actually, we have permission even to check each other. If we're ever in a tough conversation, someone's allowed to even say like, Hey, can we like lean back on this one for a second? Or we'll, we're willing to let each other kind of cut the air with a knife when we need to. Um, that's one big thing. Also though, we, 
set aside time that we're actually just getting to know each other more as people. Uh, it was so funny because I had no idea that he had been in the United States for a year of high school. I've known this guy for now six years. <laughs> We've worked together so closely in our PhD programs and then as co-founders. And I had no idea he'd spent a year of high school. And it's funny, you can think you know everything about someone and you really haven't gotten to know them fully. I mean, even people who are spouses for 40 years say this. So... Um, so always giving each other room to still get to know each other. But then also we just have a rule of like, I trust you. You've proven your character to me. And so I'm going to adopt the most generous explanation with you always. And I'm going, if I'm ever giving you feedback, it's because I'm on your team to help you do better. Um, but I'm also not going to get hung up on every little thing because I have the most generous assumptions behind everything that you do. And, and he's earned that. And I think I've earned that too. And so we're very fortunate in that regard. No, I, I I love everything you just said, and one of the reasons I'm so I'm leaning into this so much is you're actually doing what so many people talk about doing, and that's why I'm like, oh wow, I want to hear about how you are actually doing this. So I'm I want to actually dig in a little bit more. Just oh, wow. I think it's interesting, <laughs> um, it, because I, this is honestly these these topics have come up throughout this podcast, and these are recurring themes, and so I want to you know here's a new opportunity for for myself and for the listener to learn from someone doing it. Uh, so I want to see that opportunity. Yeah. So. Um, I'm really curious, how did you, I think where a lot of this stuff seems like it falls down and I'm curious if you agree with this and please disagree if you don't is setting it up, like creating the agreements, creating the structures so that you can actually have this dynamic seems where a lot of people fall down. Like once you're up and going, like, you know how to do this now, you've got a rhythm together. That's wonderful. But how did you get there? Oh yeah. No, the biggest problem people make in every relationship is we wait until we have problems to try to do like the, the right things. And it's so funny. We're, we first just, we lean back and rely on magic. And then suddenly we go, Oh, this isn't working. Now I'm going to try all these best practices when we're already deepen a problem. And that that's just, you can get out of that, but that's just so much more challenging. So we are explicit and proactive with everything. Um, we make, so did you like have a, you, you had a conversation even before yeah. you were, before we like right when you were starting, what was that conversation? So we, for, we just sat, we talked about what was important to both of us. We talked, we even made room for both, both people to share, like, what are your concerns about working with me? Where are the areas you could see this going wrong? Um, like, what are you excited about working together? Um, but both, sure. I think it just required both of us, first of all, to check our egos at the door and be like, the goal is that we both have this great relationship and we build an incredible company together. So how do we get there? But yeah, we had really tough conversations. Um, also, I try to really manage expectations around the things that I know are weaknesses for me. Uh, Young Jane are both the kind of people we're always trying to grow and learn, but we're also who we are. And so I'm just explicit with managing those expectations. And that was a big thing too. kind of being like, here's where I'm probably going to be a little hard to work with sometimes. Um, and you're and I'm giving you permission to check me on those things. But I also need you to know that's going to be something that's maybe there. Um, uh, for me, I have actually there's just a difference with how my brain works that I've had my whole life, um, where I get hyper focused on things. Mm -hmm. So I actually worked with someone when I was a kid to learn to not do it too much, but I will get hyper focused. And I'm not always the most fun person to collaborate with when I'm in hyper focus. It's a great skill and I'm trying to get a lot of stuff done, but it's not great always for a teammate. So I'm just very clear with him on that. I own that. That doesn't make me a horrible person to work with. That's just a reality. And I think it makes me a great person to work with if I can own that. 
and like give someone permission to work with that effectively. Um, yeah. And everybody has their things. So I think, and that's something that will come up in any conversation you have with me on the future work too. I think we are in the dark ages of knowing ourselves and having self-awareness. I think it's such a luxury that only few people get to have real self-insight. Um, and I hope that we start to give that to more people. Um, I see even things like cognitive behavioral therapy apps that are purely just therapy focused, not work focused. I consider those future work products because I think one of the biggest challenges in our workplace is just people not knowing how to be good to each other, um, while working towards a goal. And so that's it. That's just, it's so important in the future work, but I'm getting ahead of myself with that. But, um, <laughs> no, it's, I love it. And it's actually a good transition point. And I want to use that actually, we'll, we'll start to switch gears and dive into the future work here. But, um, you brought up something that I think is, I agree with you, is extremely important, which is the idea of self-awareness, right? And and what a gift it is to have the opportunity to really, like, I, w- one of my foundational beliefs or um, my one of my thesis, one of my thesis behind a lot of this is that um, what work is for is that work is a place we go. It's a platform to develop and express who we are in service of something greater than ourselves. And part of that is knowing and learning who we are. And then, you know, from that truth, going and building things that are useful to not only ourselves, but others in the world. And so the self-awareness piece is foundational to it. And so one of the things that's always, I mean, you and I have been friends for like four years now. And one of the things that I, I can think back to when we first met, even then, that stu- that so stood out to me about you was your level of self-awareness. Like you have an extraordinary degree of self-awareness. Um, and I'm c- really curious. Like, I mean, I remember when I was doing some research, getting ready for this conversation, I think I remember once you told me we were, we were, I think we were going for a walk in Venice by the beach. And <laughs> uh, you told, we were having this really deep conversation and you, you told me something that I never forgot, which is that your mission in life was to help, uh, basically to help people unlock potential and help people lead radically fulfilling lives. And <laughs> you, you have such a level of clarity uh, about that, that I am. So I admire it tremendously and I love it. And what I didn't know that came up in my research was that you, I think, wrote that down when you were 12? Yes. I Yeah. And so it's not necessarily how I would word it today. I just decided to be loyal to that part of myself and stick with it. Um, but yeah, I, I, from a very young age, um, I, I had parents who were very intentional about having us think about our purpose and what we really wanted to do with our lives and who we are. Um, and I, I had the kind of parents even that, um, they let us make our own choices to the extent that I made some probably pretty bad choices in high school from just like a maturity perspective of about major life decisions. Um, and, but they let me make those choices. And so, I, I think I had such a extreme level of forming that early on that it was always important to me. And it felt so incredible to me every time I got to learn something um, that helped me understand myself better from a strengths perspective, from a weaknesses perspective, or from what I care about. And that I just, I saw a lot of people around me um, who didn't see this big vision for their lives. And it seemed like it was because they just didn't have, I don't know if it's that they didn't have role models around them or that they just didn't see how they could fit into a bigger picture. Um, there's an organization that, um, here in Chicago where I'm, where I'm based now, um, that 
basically just takes people out of what we refer to here as the South Side. That's where there's a lot of crime here in Chicago. And they just basically bring um, these kids downtown just to see what it's like to see people going to work and everything. And even that experience can so radically shift something for these kids. And, and I just thought, like, what if we just could see a vision of what our life could be? Like, what if just more people just could see themselves doing something? What if they could see themselves being happy? What if they could see themselves being kind? Um, and I just think that we lack that vision in small and large ways. Um, and so that was always really important to me. And I'm so grateful that I I was raised with um, those ideas. I consider that a huge privilege. And I don't think it's the only way to be, but it's something I thought that a lot of people could benefit from. Um, and it's what I wanted to work on. <laughs> I, I love it. How did you... How did? What was it like? Because you reached a level of clarity at 12 that many people far later in their lives are still trying to get to. Yeah. How did you do that? On, I was a weird kid. I mean, I, so I was at a hospital and, uh, someone came, escaped from a TB ward who was having some mental health challenges and I got infected with tuberculosis, um, at nine. Wow. So I had a very different year at kind of a, a pretty formative age and I, and I'm fine. I was, you know, awesome medical system worked great for me. Um, at that time I was able to get great treatment, which I feel very fortunate because people do die from that disease around the world still. Um, but yeah, I, after that, I think I just had a different mentality. I didn't really care about fitting in as much. And I just became kind of a weird kid. <laughs> it, never, it never wore off. I'm still a really weird kid. <laughs> you are. And I'm a huge fan of it. Yeah. But I think those things that those things can anything that uh, gets you out of your and that's the same idea I was just talking about anything that kind of breaks whatever cycle you're in. Because I think I, I cared a lot about um, like soccer and glitter and, um, you know, like dolphins and, you know, the usual stuff. And dolphins. Dolph all those things are great. But, I, you know, I, I cared about like things you'd find in coloring books. And then suddenly I found myself like thinking about things a little differently. And I think it's just because I was forced out of the fun routine I was in before. It was a good routine. There's nothing wrong with it. But I was forced out of that routine. We've hinted about one of the main topics we're going to cover here, which is the future of work. So for someone who's not familiar with that term, how would you explain that in layman's terms, Muriel? What is the future of work and why should someone listening to this care? So I, I like to section it off into a few different things because I think that's part of why it's hard to define because work is such a big word. So I think there's the future of the workforce which is, I think, what people were initially focused on. That is, like, how is labor actually changing over time? What supply and demand around labor is, what's that picture going to look like? Um, what kind of job opportunities are going to exist? How do we mitigate risks around that? I think that's where the future work conversation started. So I think that's still where a lot of people's minds go. But that's future of the workforce to me. Um, I think there's this new kind of branch, which is the future of kind of the experience of working. Uh, so that could be anything from like, how do we help people uh, work together more effectively? That can be anything around just how do we make work a more positive thing in people's lives, just inherently like the act of doing it. Um, that can also be how do we get people working on things that are meaningful for what our world needs. Um, and then I also think there's this whole other camp that I'm more and more interested in all the time with, the, which is just like, the, it's kind of just a future of human, like the human experience. And like, mm. our, how do we make this as rich as possible for people? And we can align that with ROI. I mean, my company, we 
we are doing something that I believe is really, really important for the human experience, but it still is actually meeting a business need in society. So it's a sustainable thing that we can do. Um, so it's not like it has to be just a fluffy thing, but I think there's this new piece of the future of work where we've, there's some exciting stuff happening around, uh, like how do we actually make that human experience richer for more people? How do we give people access to dignity and meaning in their lives? So we got the future of the workforce, the future of the work experience, and then even more broadly, the future of the human experience. That's the, those are the buckets I like to think in. What does it all mean? What's my definition? You want a unifying definition? If you got one, go for it. I don't know if I do. I'll try. I'll always try. Let's see. I mean, just, I, I think when I say future of work, I mean, like, what's the vision of, of the human experience we want to create around something that's really integral to our lives work. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> I'm not a definition person. You know that. I, that's true. I do know that. I, but I'd rather swim around in an abstract sea of ideas. Let's do that instead. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just wade, wade in the, the yeah. tides of these, these ideas. Yeah. But I mean, it goes back to that core idea of, you know, the, the twin pillars of a meaningful life are meaningful work and meaningful relationships. Um, mm. And, you know, it's like, this is a huge, huge part of our lives. What are some of the misconceptions that people have about this idea? Because there are so many articles and videos and people in the news and whatever about, you know, the future of work and robots are going to take our jobs and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm, I know you have seen all of that. So what are what are those big misconceptions and uh, how, how would you suggest that someone think about that instead? Yeah, I think some of the misconceptions are around just where technology is today, for one. Um, I think. I think there's been a very sensationalized narrative talking about a lot of technologies, and I think it's left people in the dark. Um, what Bina Amanis, who you should absolutely have on this podcast, and anyone who's hearing okay. this, listen to that episode because she's awesome. Um, she she left. Oh, sorry, uh, who is it? What, what's what's uh, her name? Bina Amanis. So she's been okay. she's been in CTO roles at a lot of large tech companies. She left um, HP recently to start an organization called Humans for AI. So I get to on the board there, which is a wonderful experience. It's such a cool organization. Um, But her focus is how do we create a common language around these technologies so that people can actually jump in? And she's very focused on diversity and inclusion because she says that the outsized impact that all of this kind of especially AI can have in society and how we make decisions in micro and macro ways, um, that can't be informed by just one type of person. Because the data that we're mm-hmm. using and the bias there and how we structure that data and how we apply then our tool to problems, there's so much opportunity for bias at each of those points that it is so critical that we bring more people to the table. So she doesn't want everyone to become a programmer necessarily, but she's really focused on how do we get domain experts or people from all walks of life speaking a common language so they can be a part of developing uh, tools of the future. And I love that idea. Um, because I really think that it's often, I think it's very easy to be like, Oh, this is an important skill. Let's have everybody learn this skill. Let's all become a programmer. That's the future. And we forget that there's actually room for lots of different types of people at the table and things are richer when we bring a lot of perspectives. It's just figuring out a way to bring those perspectives together. So I love any kind of common language approach around tech. Any organization doing that, please reach out to me. I would love to parrot what you're doing because I think it's really important. Um, that's one piece. Another misconception, kind of related, is this idea um, that there are like certain 
skills that people need to learn and that we can just like reskill people with like shoving those skills down their throat. Um, I think this the whole upskilling thing. I, so there's a version of upskilling and reskilling I agree with. So I'll tell you what I don't agree with. Well, actually, I'll okay. give you an example of, of part of what I think could be better just in how we do this in society generally. And then I'll go to the details. So if you think of, if you think about old, um, I, I love to read about like Kublai Khan and all the old Mongol hordes and old military mm-hmm. strategy and stuff. That's all really fascinating. You're, you're a Dan Carlin fan, aren't you? <laughs> I don't know. Hardcore can't, history? Can't confirm or deny. Um, <laughs> so, so back in that context, there was this idea that we look at kind of the, the power, the human power we have in a, in a civilization, and then we'd form a strategy around it with our military, right? Um, now we have corporations that say, okay, here's our strategy. Here's what we're trying to achieve. We're going to plug people in to be that kind of human power behind it. And I think there's, you know, there's pros and cons with both. But I think that is one big flaw in how we're thinking about the future of work. Because I think we're still thinking like, okay, here's what an organization is trying to accomplish. Shove people into where there's going to be a spot for humans. And I think as long as we're thinking about like, okay, here's what a job will exist in the future. Let's shove people into that. I think we're missing out on a lot of potential. I think we're limiting solutions that we can see. Mm. Uh, I'm much more excited by the idea of actually understanding people better, actually understanding competencies, capabilities, knowledge, skills, abilities, other characteristics that they bring to the table, and then coming up with the constellation of ways we can apply that. I think then we're going to come up with a lot more solutions. So just that whole mentality of how we're thinking about like, oh, let's figure out the top five skills you need for the future and then go shove a training down everyone's throat around that. I just think that's the that's just not the way we're going to make leaps forward as a society. Um, I think we make leaps forward when we have something that is greater than the sum of its parts. So that's a big shift that is important to me. Another one, though, is that um, the misconception, I think, is that people are only caring about economics. Um, I, I think UBI is part of the solution at some point. I think there will be a stage that something like that will become... Yeah, I meaning universal basic income? Yes. Something like that, I think, will be... Some level of that will be a part of society at some point. I don't think that if, all, if, if, let's say, we live in a world where jobs go away, I don't think that would solve all of our problems. I think there are absolutely things that work serves in our lives outside of just making money. And... Mm-hmm. So I'm very, I, I hope that more people are focusing on not just a job for money, but actually like the human experience and some of the identity that goes along with that. Um, I worked with a lot of like truck drivers in the research I've done over the past several years. Um, and it's not that they're in, they're scared of losing just the economic piece, which that is scary. There's a lot of truck drivers that have taken very sure. large loans out to drive their trucks and whatever. Um, and so that's a, that's a real threat, but there's also this, you know, my dad was a truck driver. I love being a truck driver. It's a big part of my identity. It's who I am. And so mm-hmm. I think just assuming that we can be like, well, here's a higher paying job for you. We gave you the skills for it. Be happy. I think that's the wrong mentality too. I think we have to get a lot more creative with how we're helping people see how their identity fits into the future. Um, and that's why people are, if you see any kind of insecurity research, which I've done a lot of uh, fo- uh, focus on job insecurity, it's always that we just don't see how our identity fits into the future picture. 
that's what makes us insecure in relationships. That's what makes us. In- Could you give me an example of that? <laughs> so let's say that, let's say that I, um, am at a company and my specialty is that I would come up with these great reports. And that was kind of what I was known for. I would come up with these reports that everyone would read and give like a really holistic idea. Let's say they just, they just promoted this hotshot manager guy and he, he's like, well, we've got to be agile and fast. We're not going to do reports anymore. That's going to make me feel insecure in my job because that was my thing. That was my identity here. And now I'm not seeing how that fits in the future. That's a simple example. But then we see that on a huge... And we see that all the time in workplaces. That's a, a huge problem. And that's when we actually see people starting to disengage, which I think we miss the, I think we miss the mark on engagement because we forget how much engagement is just people seeing a future somewhere that they can identify with. Um, and that's a whole broader discussion that I'm really, <laughs> I hope we get to have. That's actually a fascinating, yeah, that's a fascinating, tell me more about that. Cause that's a fascinating definition of engagement that I've never heard before. Well, it's not so much my definition. It's that I'm not so interested in measuring attitudes around engagement. If we're not also focused on how do we drive more engagement? I think there are several pieces to driving engagement, but the one most overlooked that I think we can actually make a material difference around. And this is really what my company focuses on is how do we help people see on a, from a personal identity level, how they fit into the future at their job um, mm-hmm. or at their company or in the world or whatever. Um, because at the end of the day, even if your coworkers are friendly to you, even if you have a nice boss, even if you have ping pong tables in the break room and really, really good granola when you roll in in the morning, that's freely available. Like you are not going to be engaged in your job if you don't personally see how what I offer my identity, I actually see that fitting into the future of where this is going. I actually can see a path forward for myself. You're just not. Is that another way of saying that, that you need to be able to see the way that you contribute to this thing uniquely? Yeah. And humans really care about contributing, actually. Um, you know, we're, we're all, we're all a little lazy too. We all have our, you know, our rough edges. But at the end of the day, something very consistent about human behavior is that we are uh, the scientific word people use is agentic, but we, we have this like contributing bent to us. Um, mm-hmm. we, we need to enact some change in our environment. That's actually a very core kind of need. And there's different ways mm-hmm. to do that. And there's really destructive ways to do that. And there's really healthy ways to do that. But that is something that we see is pretty universal, even in people who we would maybe um, encapsulate as more passive on a spectrum of passive to assertive. Like still, we see that people have that need to kind of enact something on their environment, um, be a part of something, leave a mark. That's That's a big need. And so... If you are a totally replaceable, interchangeable... I mean, have you ever been engaged in a relationship or job where you felt like a completely interchangeable piece that they could just immediately replace and you would have no value and not even be remembered? It's a crap feeling. Yeah, it's a crap feeling. You're not going to be engaged in that job. I don't care how good the free granola is. So that's where I think the whole engagement... whole The whole arena around engagement has really missed it is that we're focusing on some of the kind of symptoms of like, or some of the kind of icing on the cake, but we haven't actually thought about how do we drive the core of what makes someone engaged. Um, and the cool, the really cool news, and this is what we stumbled, young Jay and I stumbled upon and then got so excited to work on is that there's a very effective way of actually driving this that also helps people learn and grow along the way. And that is like what is driving the engagement and you're getting your people to grow. 
So we're like, okay, what's that? And that's what we're building. I mean, that's where we're working on. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'll buy it. Tell me about that, Muriel. What is that? Yeah, that's where we're working on. So, well, so I, in the past, I was a part of, um, there was kind of this trend for a little while uh, that I was lucky enough to catch the wave of when I was in my early twenties where executives were hiring, um, early 20 somethings to be their executive coaches, which, it, it was a funny concept, but I think the idea was kind of, well, we're not needing someone who's a business expert. We want someone who just thinks differently and can probe with the right questions for us to learn about ourselves. And that's why that actually, it was largely effective um, because executive coaching is mostly just a self-awareness exercise. You're really just... Mm-hmm. So typically using actual assessments or some kind of psychometric test, something like that, um, you are figuring out kind of a snapshot of where this person is, maybe a more holistic picture of who they are in a static way as well. And then tying kind of some changes that would be good to organizational strategy. And you're just really then just reminding them over time to focus on the right things. That's really executive coaching in a nutshell. Um, okay. And so we were looking at that process and we're, we realized like that's actually when you take that same approach and you apply it to someone at any level in organization, that's actually an incredible way to make them feel engaged. You help them understand their identity, how that identity ties to organization, and you're guiding them along their pathway to get where they're going. And so we were like, okay, so you can't afford to have an executive coach for every single person in an organization. How do we make that possible? And that's what we worked on throughout our PhD. Um, We were always throwing around ideas of how could we actually scale that? Um, and we figured out how to do it. It's not going to be the same as working with a person, but uh, we basically took uh, so many, <laughs> more than you want to know, psychometric tests uh, that measure anything from personality to mindset to technical skills to leadership capabilities. Uh, we put them into this model um, where we're looking at all the linkages between those expected relationships with tons of historical data. So we're able to create this kind of machine learning model where we can get just a few insights about someone and already have a pretty holistic idea of where they might land on a lot of these things. Uh, we then there we trigger them with uh, insight, which we're calling a nudge. That's the vernacular that society has adopted um, for that. And then we just do that over time. So we basically figured out a way just to scale what we did as executive coaches uh, with the technology. Okay, so let me let me just make sure I'm understanding yeah. this. Not not only for for myself first and foremost, but also for the listener. So when you look at your experience in executive coaching and and that field or or set of practices, essentially what I think you're saying is that you're working with someone who is under working to understand you and who you, not only who you are but who who you can become and how that fits into the future that you want to create whether it's at this organization or in your life or both and then sort of over time it's sort of like it's almost like they they're creating a mirror and they're holding that mirror up to you so you can see more clearly yes. who you, how you're acting in this moment relative to who you are and who you want to become and then you can course correct and, and over time, continue to live into that future you're trying to create. Is that the, the core of this? Yeah, that's the core of this. So, I mean, our customers work with us because they are trying to drive engagement, typically focus on reducing turnover, and they have serious reskilling needs. So they want their, they have things, the competencies that their people do not have that they need them to have. Um, and so 
beautifully, those two things work really well together in this model. And they work really well with, if you did traditional executive coaching, but we figured out how to do that. Those two things being which, which so two? driving engagement, but also helping people learn the skills and competencies they need to over time because training one-off trainings are great for motivation. They're not great for actually sustaining behavioral change. So, hmm. so basically our, it's, it's a very simple tool in the end. So somebody um, who is an employee at one of the companies we work with, they, they have an app. They interact with what looks like a chatbot. It's not a true chatbot, but it, it feels like you're having a quick conversation. You're just answering three quick questions, though. This is like a 30-second session, and then you get your behavioral change nudge of the day. You can also see your full reports about uh, across all of these different things we're measuring um, for you. Uh, one thing that we ethically really, really cared about with our company is that people insights means that people actually get those insights about themselves, not just that the company gets people insights. Um, so people get all the insights on themselves, which we think is a missed opportunity in other platforms because that's actually a great way to drive behavioral change is someone seeing themselves more clearly. Um, mm-hmm. And then the company is actually able to kind of manage the reskilling program through this system. So they're able to input content that they need people to be learning. They're able to actually see where the skills gaps are in the organization across heat maps. Um, so it's, it's pretty robust on on the customer side, but on the, on the user side, it's very simple and it's based on simple executive coaching. You learn a little bit about yourself through a nudge. It's a reminder, and then you do that over time, and you're shaping your behavior. So, just to clarify, one term um, or two terms, you, you use the terms reskilling and upskilling. Yeah, are they the same, or what? What is the difference? So, so technically, reskilling would be like we need you to have a different skill set. We're going to train you to have a different skill set. Upskilling is like we need you to have more advanced skills in an arena where you're already working. Um, they are okay, used so it's sort of about whether you have an existing competency or not. And if you if you're if you're further developing an existing competency that's upskilling, right? And if it's like you just need a whole new one, that's reskilling. Yeah, except for now, those and that's how those words started when you when we were everyone was first doing research in the space. That's how it was. That that distinction was made. Now no one makes a distinction, and people just throw both words around, and it pretty much just oh, means we okay. want you to learn new things. Yeah. Gotcha. And I'm not a huge fan of either of those words. I think you should have a podcast contest of who can come up with the best word that's not reskilling or upskilling for this, for what's How about happening. Learning? Yeah. That's, that's, that one, that one would be good. I think learning though, then people <laughs> feel like, um, it gets conflated with other things, but you're, you're probably right. We should probably just call it learning. I want to just try to understand a little bit more about how it works. So someone at one of these companies comes in, they 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 open their app, they do some sort of onboarding process uh, of whatever length. And so that is helping you to... You sort of have cooked up or cooked, cooked together a bunch of these psychometric assessments. And then from that, you're sort of building... Um, I think we talked about this at, at dinner that one time about like you're building a, a basically a, a graph of their skills, their strengths relative to what the organization... I think you're, I think it's like you take, you take a test and you're building a, a skills graph of what they've got relative to what the organization thinks it needs and the future competencies for the kind of the path they're on in the organization. And then you're presumably you are using strong, the strongest signals in the data you've got to infer the other things they need. Yeah. Is that how this that, works? That is almost spot on. Yeah. So definitely the last part. So we basically take signal like the the database. So first, let me just back up. So psychometric tests all have a structure behind them, kind of an architecture where normally we have like a trait we're predicting. 
And then we have kind of facets of that trait. So let's say we're interested in your personality. Then we maybe would have the big five. So like openness would be one of the facets. Then there's some... Fac- really quick, a, a psychometric test for someone who doesn't know that term is what? Oh, it's, it's a test to measure something unseen, something latent about a person. So that could be... So like every personality test Any you can personality test, any IQ test, any kind of general mental ability test, any spatial reasoning test, any leadership competency test, any 360 you've ever done, those would all be psychometric tests. Um, and I've, and I've spent way too much time with psychometric tests over the years. So sorry for not clarifying that. Um, so, so let's say we're trying to predict personality. That would be our trait we're interested in. Um, and then, or yeah. And then the, the second tier we'd look at maybe openness as one of the facets if we're doing big five personality, five factor model, which is kind of the, the one that everyone knows. Um, within mm-hmm. openness, though, there's other sub facets, which would be things like how intellectual you are or how, uh, how fantasy oriented you are, things like that. So anyway, there's that architecture, there's that tiered architecture behind every test. So basically what we did is we took a lot of historical data across um, over like 52 psychometric tests in our initial catalog. And we basically measured all of the relationships across all of these data points in this historical data. And we're able to create this, this model, um, which has all of those tests, that architecture linked together using network analytic data modeling. Mm-hmm. So we have basically this massive constellation of what you could be across all of this catalog. Uh, so then when you've, you've built like a meta assessment where this, yeah. from any entry point, you can almost predict where they would, how they would read out on a different assessment. Yes. And so now so if what I took happens, like the strengths finder, you could like, sorry, I'm just trying to make sure I really uh, yeah, make yeah. this concrete. So if I, for example, if what I just said is true, it'd be like, uh, I take the big five assessment, right? And so you, you can see I have a certain score on openness and a variant of, or sorry, in your word, a facet of openness, like the intellectual openness, which I'm definitely high on. Um, and then given your, your sort of underlying network of, of these across all these assessments, you could then, I assume, predict how I would score on a different assessment and sort of integrate all these things together into one holistic nudge system? Yeah. So, and that's, and that's really the value of what we offer. So somebody doesn't have to sit down and take an hour long test to learn about one of these things. Instead, every time we're learning about you, every time you interact with our tool, we sharpen what we know, but it only takes three data points for us to give you a behavioral change nudge. Um, and our, and it's a learning tool over time. It's, we're learning more about you. Um, you're learning more from this tool. It, it sharpens and it gets better, but we're right away getting to help develop people. So this has been really useful when we've tested this with like medical groups where doctors don't, they don't take time to go do leadership development trainings, for example. But that's something that's become really important in that industry. Um, and so this is perfect. It's literally a two minute segment where you're very quickly giving a little bit of insight about yourself and then you're getting your nudge. Um, and that nudge is always triggered by what we see as the most important thing for you to focus on. Sometimes that's going to be weighted by an organizational objective. Some of our customers choose to go that way. Um, others choose to let it be free form and focus just on the most important competencies because we've actually rank ordered what is important from a future perspective in terms of general competencies someone could have. Um, so it's, it's a fun tool. It's very simple though in what it feels like, but there's a lot going on behind the scenes with the data. I'm imagining some of the brainstorming sessions you and Caben have had about this because I can see the overlaps right here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We both... Yeah, we were definitely raised by the same parents, you can tell. Yeah, so my brother, (laughs) for anyone listening, my brother is also a founder of a company 
Um, it's an anonymous opinion platform called True Public. They collect more uh, insights on Gen Z than any company in the world right now. They do some really interesting stuff, but they basically made uh, responding to, I guess, what are kind of polls, like entertaining mm-hmm. by sharing insights back with people. So check it out. There's my plug for my brother. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Actually, it is, it is a fun app. I've met Kevin and I had a really fun jam session about it like a year ago. Um, I should actually get him on the show now that I think of it. Um, that would be way too but, much fun. You can't have that much fun. Oh, uh, I think I can. <laughs> I, think, I think, in fact, I think I should. So I have two questions about what you just said. And, and this is sort of, we're diving into the, a little bit of how the sausage is made here and the product side of this. I'm imagining, and you sort of answered it, but I want to just clarify. So if I'm someone taking your assessment, Right. And so basically I'm, I'm, I'm trusting your assessment that it's going to guide me in a good direction for my future, for the future I want to have. Um, the question I would have is how was, and I'd like you to just expand on this. How is the, how are these recommendations being made? What is the North Star you are guiding me towards? And how do I know it's a North Star I'm going to be happy about? Yeah. So we're using established measures in our catalog, at least for the first 52, um, components, which would last you like over a year of usership. If you just went through our standard, our standard plan, um, there's a lot that we can tinker and change within that. And there's a lot that a company could also insert into our catalog that our system can hold and, and take you through. Um, so either what you're being brought through is kind of what we've identified are these are, these are well-established models that are tied to important outcomes that are good for people. These are things that are helpful to know, or they're, or they are something where there's no necessarily right or wrong answer. We're balancing, which is a big part of what we do with executive coaching. And so that is, that's kind of a model we've replicated. The other side though is anything that your organization inputs. We know that for you to be successful in that organization, this is helping you get there, but within the context of who you are, that's something that's important to us is that there's not one version of leadership, but we're going to figure out like what's the piece that's kind of really important in your organizational context that you do need to, to get ahead, which people care about that from a practical um, perspective. It becomes a lot more organizational driven when we get into the technical skill component that comes in. We always start though, first with mindset, second with some core personality, um, because that Mm. also helps us. We actually change how we even nudge your behavior based upon what we learn about your personality, because we know how to reach different personalities better. So it's very personalized. It, It We do some light customization for organizations. Um, but at the, at the, at the bare bones level, like why should you trust that it's getting you in a good direction is because it's, it's based upon years and years of historical data of what did we learn about executives with, that we're trying to accomplish something and how did we get them to a better place? Um, nothing is going to make you be like, a, a worse person in terms of character. It's all things that increase like how you are treating people well, um, like prioritizing effectively, uh, making, you know, prudent decisions, thinking critically, um, mm-hmm. you know, understanding how to get buy-in from other people. Anytime we're talking on the soft skill side, it's something like that. Some of those universal things that are effective. Yeah. Cause I've heard you say elsewhere that, you know, I think you said soft skills are the power skills of the future. Yes. Absolutely. And it seems, it seems like that's a lot of where the non-technical side of this is pointed is that are the, 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 those power skills, those very human skills that are, um, they can be developed and they are critical to the future of work is what I think you're saying. Oh yeah. And actually I would even feel comfortable with this product not having any technical skills included. I would still say that is a great reskilling tool because I'm not convinced there is some set 
skill set that people need at all. I have not seen any research that convinces me of that. What I think people need is to be very self-aware, very adaptive, and very a- like able to learn in the way that is going to be most effective and, and proactive for them. Um, I think they need those power skills, those soft skills so that they're ready for anything. So I'm more interested in how do we get an entire cohort in a company future ready than I'm interested in teaching people how to public speak or how to program. Yeah, it sounds like what you're really like it's translating into some of the language I use on this show. It sounds like you're really much more interested in the foundational meta skills that will enable someone to be anti-fragile to any future that comes their way as opposed to being future resilient with a specific skill like programming. Yeah, 100%. Yes, you said that perfectly. We're, we will have you do all of our marketing from now on. Okay, cool. Well, good thing we're recording this. You can just lift it. <laughs> My gift to you. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. No, so you said that on that note, is there is there a difference between... so? Um, there's a term that uh, I, I'm glad exists now uh, that has come into usage in the last few years called uh, anti-fragile or anti-fragility. Is there? But I've also seen a term thrown around a lot in this conversation when I'm, you know, reading articles or on the news or whatever of you know, sort of like quote f- being future resilient. Do you think of those as different things, or wh- what is? What? How do you think of this? So I've used both for years. So when I first started working on the future of work in what in 2013. Um, I would always say future proof. And then I was like, Oh, don't say future proof because (laughs) that doesn't make any sense. Um, And then I switched to this idea of future resilience. Like, Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm like stealing ready for anything. But then it was actually one of my PhD advisors at the time. uh, He's an awesome, awesome thinker on this topic. He's, he's uh, teaches the out of uh, Gozetta's business school at Emory university in Atlanta Um, does really interesting research now, by the way, with, um, machine learning tools in hospital settings mm. and everything. He, you should have him on the show. He's great. Um, cool. yeah. We'll get all these people on the show. Yeah, it's get everybody on the show. We can have a big get reunion them all, get all of all the people I love on the show. I love it. I love it. It's great. <laughs> um, so what he said, though, is he's like, why would you... He's like resilient. He's like, that's like the dig in your heels and like let the wind blow against you, but you're not going to fall. He's like, is that really the best we can do? And he challenged me to think different differently than that. And so since then, I've really embrace this idea of future ready, mostly because I just don't like the word anti thrown into something. I, it's just not positive enough for me. I, I like a positive spin on everything. Um, sure. So I, I love the idea of future ready is, and it's not, you, that doesn't mean you're perfect. That doesn't mean you have all the skill sets, but you have this readiness to you um, that you can take on what life throws at you. And I, yeah, so I like that a lot better than resilience, but it's, I think all of this comes down to like, what is, what are, how are we defining these things? I think how some people define resilience fits that. But that's the, that's the idea. I like to kind of picture that person who's just almost just like, okay, pass me the ball. I'm going to like, yeah, they're just like nimble on their toes, ready, ready for whatever. Yeah. yeah. Put me in, coach. I'm ready. <laughs> Put me in, coach. Put me in, coach. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I love that idea of like the way it was explained to me, uh, at least the way I have it framed in my head is, is the idea of, of resiliency versus anti fragility and, and fair point about, you know, the idea of anti-fragile being maybe we need a better term for that. But um, the, the way it was explained to me was that anything that is resilient is still defined by its breaking point. Mm. So it can be really, really strong, but it still is has yeah. this breaking point where, you know, you know, there is a point beyond which you push it that it snaps. Uh, whereas something that is anti-fragile is actually aided by that which pushes it. Right. So it's like... Um, 
you know, it gets stronger the more it's attacked, so to speak, right? And and so and and that is while that's a bit of a negative metaphor, it is a powerful idea if you can be if you could exist in a state of readiness like that, which I think a lot of it comes back to mindset, yes. frankly. Yeah. But, so basically the whole anti-fragile idea, just a different word. <laughs> that's what I like. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> I'm down with that. I, I'm big wow. on language um in my life. Like I I'm really I hold the language I use with myself to a very high standard of Mm -hmm. just certain principles that are important to me. So I get hung up on stuff like that. But anti-fragile is a good one. I love that. Love the premise. (laughs) Okay, good. We're we're down with the premise and we'll we'll figure out the terms as we go. So I want to zoom back out really quick on, on just the future of work in general. So what I hope to create for the person listening to this is is sort of a context, you know, a a foundation to think from, because this is one of those big topics that is going to be around for a long time. And we're all going to have to engage Mm -hmm. in this topic, whether we like it or not. So I'm hoping we kind of just lay a conceptual foundation for people to think from and and start to think for themselves from. Um, So to that point, uh, I have a question. So this is not the first time in history that there have been large scale fears around the impact of technology on human jobs and workforce. Uh, I mean, going all the way back to the Luddites, right? This is like, I think it's called the Luddite fallacy. I mean, far, far further, but like <laughs> the Luddites are probably the best known example for, for most Americans. Why is this time different? Is, or is it different? And if so, why? Okay. Well, first I, so first I want to debunk the idea of the Luddite fallacy. I do not believe the Luddites were wrong. Actually, if we look at what happened to the actual Luddites, that community of people, they were economically decimated for two generations. We only call it a fallacy because we aren't the people who had to live with the implications of what happened to them. Um, they okay. they were right. Their lives were actually destroyed by what happened. So I think that's one important thing to remember is that history can go on and things can correct. And I actually believe um, that largely we will come up with solutions and this will not be something that decimates the human experience or makes our lives horrible. I think we will correct. So what I really care about is the people caught in that transition, like the Luddites were. Um, that that remains something always front of mind for me. Um, the most vulnerable populations, how do we make sure that this transition isn't brutal for those people? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't, I'm not a person who believes this is ultimately going to be a bad thing over time. I think we are incredibly inventive and we're going to come up with some awesome solutions that make this better. I also think work is very imperfect. I do not see it as something we need to protect. I think it is something that we need to improve. And so I think shifts like this can be very positive if we seize that opportunity. Very good point, especially about the the Luddites not being wrong. <laughs> That's my 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 soapbox I always stand on because everyone talks, oh yeah, those silly Luddites, but they weren't so silly. They were right for their own lives. That's true. Yeah. They were. Um, so the question is then, there's a lot of people and in a much broader swath of uh, the workforce than the Luddites. Um, there's a lot of people who have similar concerns today. And when they look at artificial intelligence, they look at how it's changing things. Is, is this time different? And if so, why? I think it's faster. So I think that is different. I mean, we're not, humans are great with change. We're not great with rapid change. Um, people always say humans are bad with change, but it's actually, it's not true. We're just not good at rapidly changing. We typically have a period of dissonance accepting change. Um, so I think the pace is probably the number one thing that concerns me. Um, mm. 
but I, I still think that there's so much we can, we can do within that. And I think that some of the very things that will cause some of the problems we have, the sticky problems we have to solve, I think can also be tools for some really great solutions to make work better. Um, so that's what I'm focusing on. I think regardless, uh, you know, a lot of these technologies are going to be adopted in ways that replace jobs. So I, I just say, let's get really busy thinking about how we can also use these technologies or whatever other tools we have in our toolkit to make work better, to make opportunities for people. So that's what I'm working on. No, I love that. And and I actually, I'm right there with you. It's something I'm actively researching right now is these changes at this point are inevitable. You know, automation of many, many jobs or many activities. I should say activities, not jobs, uh, because jobs are bigger than activities. That is coming. And so there's going to be these changes. And I'm very interested in what do we do to help those people who are, who are caught in the, in that transition. So you've been, what do you see? Like what for someone who's listening to this, whether they're, let's say it's someone who either wants to go do something about this directly by starting a company like you did, mm-hmm. or maybe it's someone, you know, uh, an executive in a, a a large company that has a lot of employees that are, you know, very much on this path that are going to have their roles dramatically affected by these now inevitable trends of technology. What should what should we do about this? So there's so much to be do to be done at different levels. Um, so one one area that I think anyone can make a difference um, is just helping with the whole awareness piece. So there's a great story. I, I'm going to blank on the source on this one. So you can dig it and put it in the footnotes. But there's a woman in a town in Tennessee. Her town had been an experimental place where they had really fast internet or something. Great connectivity. I forget what, what it was. Um, so her daughter and her daughter's partner had a couple of kids. They ended up, um, unfortunately being victims of the opioid, opioid, um, epidemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, they weren't able to have the children anymore. Um, the children needed to go live with this woman. So this woman, because she had to care for the kids, she wasn't able to keep her job. So in any, you know, in any historical example, we would assume then that that woman's life is ruined, right? There, that would have been kind of the ends of the story there. That would have been this sad, this whole family kind of broke down. But what ended up happening is she got hired by some tech company to do some support role mm-hmm. in her town. She didn't have to move. She was able to work from home. Um, she was able to care for her kids and she was making more money than she did before. And she actually loved what she did. She loves her new job. So I think that's like the poster child of like this done right. Um, okay. Now, for that to have been possible, though, the most important piece in that whole puzzle, um, outside of just those opportunities existing, was that this woman needed some awareness of that even being an option for her. And I, I see so many interesting organizations that have popped up. I see so many interesting initiatives that different governments are doing, at like a local level or a national level. I see so many ways that people could be providing more economic security or job security for themselves. And it seems like we're just not getting the solutions into the right hands. So one thing I just encourage people to do is just be people who are just vigilantly looking for opportunities and connecting people with those. I I was riding in an Uber the other day and this woman starts telling me about her dream and what she and what she wanted to do. And I had just seen this thing um, in Chicago about grants for women of color who were starting small businesses. And I got her connected with it. And she has funding. And now she's starting a company. Like there's 
Wow, there's things great. like that that can happen if we're if we're keeping our eyes open. And I, I think there's so much that we can be doing um, instead of just talking about the problem all the time. Like, look at how you can connect people with information. Now, I think there's better tools we can have that do that on a macro level. But one thing I'm just committed to is just being aware of all of those opportunities out there for people and telling people about them. That's a big thing. Anytime someone's done something interesting, I think a big problem um, in in kind of any impact space is just helping get the word out. So that's one piece that's mm-hmm. just simple. Um, if if I was somebody in a massive kind of leadership level, I think there is a piece that has to be policy for navigating this. And there's a piece that I think are just practical solutions. I think we're kidding ourselves if we think we'll get through a massive transition like what's coming without some kind of safety net for people who are most impacted. I think we can do our best efforts at reskilling. I think there is going to need to be something. So that's one piece. It's a less optimistic piece. Um, but I think the, that there's lots of examples of things like that working. Um, and I think we'll navigate that okay. But I think, I think it's good that no matter what people's political leanings are, I think it's good that the term UBI came up in this election cycle just so people start to be familiar with those kind of ideas. Cause I do think something like that is coming in the future. And I, I don't even necessarily think it'll be from a, a political party that we would expect. I think it's just something that's going to be a pretty universally agreed upon idea at some point. Um, Mm-hmm. Outside of that, though, if you're just practically managing people and leading people, I think the more that you actually get to know the DNA of who your people are and what they can mm-hmm. offer, um, the more solutions you will find. So that's something I, I've worked with a lot of um, like government leaders and executives of companies. And it's amazing how much we look at just like what we're trying to accomplish and we're not looking at who the people are and it's because it's hard. And so anytime I'm working with people that manage teams, I've been challenging them. Like, do you actually really know your people? Like everything that they could bring to the table. Have you tried to actually capture that and think about how that could be tied to opportunities in your company? And I even have this uh, model that I have people, um, who lead teams do it's uh, I don't know if you're familiar. It's really boring stuff, but like job analysis, work analysis. Have you heard of that? I've only heard it mentioned. That's all I know. So it is this old school method. So in 1952, something like that, 1954, um, there was a method that the the U.S. Army started doing, um, which was basically trying to sort people into uh, occupations within the military. So they were trying to figure out like, okay, well, what are the knowledge, skills, abilities, other characteristics that I need to be effective um, in this role? And they came up with this kind of taxonomy of like a role and all the things you would need to be great in that role. And then they started slotting people into those positions. And that was the first time really that we saw something like that outside of I actually the the imperial court in China many thousands, <laughs> a few thousand years, a couple thousand <laughs> years before did that too. Um, but not a couple thousand, one thousand years before. But anyway. So it was the it was the exam that anyone could take if they wanted to enter the government, right? And then if you could pass the test, which was brutally hard, it didn't matter where you came from, you were in. So it, it wasn't necessarily a test, actually. It's just it was a way of um, cataloging cataloging work opportunities. So okay. basically, what they have done since then now is all labor data in the world is still structured in that same way. It's still a catalog of there's these like occupational categories, there's jobs within that, there's tasks you can do, there's knowledge, skills, abilities, other characteristics. And that's how we think 
mm-hmm. about jobs. And so when we're writing job descriptions, even um, when we're hiring people in companies, when we're thinking about job requirements, it still is all very reflective of that model that we're just kind of slotting people into our catalog. So one thing that I've been working on for a long time um, and been very passionate about is how do we actually flip that model on its head and think instead about if I have this skill, what are all of the what's the wide constellation of opportunities that would open up to me? Um, and so that's a whole different way of structuring data from like a workforce perspective. So instead of just having taxonomies of data, we have ontologies, which means it's interconnected. We see the linkages between anything. So from a government... Okay, wait, push pause for a second. Yeah. What, what's the difference between a taxonomy and an ontology? So a taxonomy is like a catalog. So think species of animals. So we'd be like, you know, cats, big cats, tigers. Okay. You get like the tiers there. It's like a tiered catalog. Yes. Um, yes. If we have an ontology, it's... All, all tigers are big cats, but not all big cats are tigers. I mean, I don't know. I'm not honestly an expert on tigers. I, so I feel like I you're going to have to bring yeah. someone else on for that. <laughs> I'll ask a biologist <laughs> friend. Let's you. move on. <laughs> so, but then on the, the other end of the spectrum is we could have something like an ontology, um, which is where we're we're seeing kind of what we call nodes. So that's like one. So that could be like a tiger. And then we have edges between nodes. So that could be like the strength of the relationship. So we'd have like a tiger and then we'd have like a house cat and we'd see like how strongly Mm -hmm. related they were. So that's the, and then it ends up looking like a big constellation or spider web. You've seen network analytic databases. That's what I'm Yeah, this is graph theory. Yes, there we go. So those are the two different ways we could think about structuring data. I'm trying to get people to switch to ontology. That was my soapbox for years. I worked with a lot of governments mm. to do that. Um, I have a tool actually that's a finalist for a grant. If I get it, I can, I'm going to make the tool that I developed actually open source to anyone to use. Um, cool. but what is I, is that the skills map thing you worked on? Yes, it is. Yeah. So say more about that. Yeah. So, okay. So whether we're talking about a team in an organization or a math and or the entire workforce in Chile, I think we are so much better prepared to help people see new job opportunities if their job goes away or to see more opportunities within an organization if they're insecure about their future there. If we, instead of just thinking about jobs and the requirements for jobs, we have an interconnected view of what are all of the ways I can apply a skill. So we, what this tool basically does is it follows this very boring process of, oh, wow, I just realized now how far away I jumped from what I was saying in the beginning. So back to job and work analysis. That's how boring it is. <laughs> I can't even get through talking about it. Uh, but it's a useful tool. So job analysis, though, is basically a way that we go through a job and actually capture at a very nuanced level what are all the components in this job. Knowledge, skills, abilities, other characteristics. KSAOs. I've said that so many times on this podcast. That's the world I live in is KSAOs. Um, and, and so that just to make that concrete for people, that's like, let's, let's do an example of that. So that's, let's imagine someone who, uh, the job is a computer programmer, right? Can you take that example and, and just give us a simple version of it? What, what are the KSANOs for, say, a programmer? So knowledge, you're right. Knowledge is something that you, it's like information that you learn, which is, I think, going to be the least interesting part of our KSAOs as we move forward with technology. Skills is like something that you learn how to do. Um, and so maybe knowledge would be like, okay, I know that if I balance like fat with acid when I'm cooking, that it's going to taste better. Skill would be mm-hmm. like actually getting a feel for how to do that and practically cook okay. something. Ability would be something more innate. So like, oh, well, I just have a really good sense of taste. 
Like I always have, I'm really able to just get a feel for what people are going to like. And then other characteristics could be that you also, um, like you also happen to have kind of a quirky look to you. So you're like perfect for a celebrity chef. Like you just have that quirky look that just kind of fits. (laughs) That doesn't really necessarily directly fit, but it like helps you be successful there. So when we're thinking about any kind of task or job, we're generally drawing upon those four things and a long list of those four things. Um, within a person. So you can kind of, there's almost a taxonomy at play here of you have these KSAOs at the bottom level that then roll up, you know, you you sample from knowledge and skills and abilities and so forth and to, to compose a a task basically. Right. And then you have, or a a task or an activity. And then you have just basically this portfolio of these KSAOs, I guess. And at the end of the day, you end up calling that giant portfolio a job with air quotes around. Is that Yeah, fair? that's fair. And so instead of actually structuring the data, so it's the same data that we're getting. It's the same KSAO data. Instead of structuring that in the catalog where that's at like the bottom and that's like where we get our details, but we have a job above it and we don't look at KSAOs between jobs. We're just interested in them within jobs. Instead, now we're saying, well, let's make that the focus of this entire database and let's look at all the connections across of these, all of these KSAOs and then how that could relate to a task opportunity or a job opportunity. It's just a different way of capturing the same idea, but it materially changes how we can think about a work transition. For sure. So so to try and make a really overly simplistic visual metaphor, it's almost like a taxonomy is imagining it like a ladder being structured like a ladder where one rolls up to the other to the other. And then the other one is it looks more like a spider web. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Okay, cool. And so by, by shifting from the ladder to the spider web, you can have way many more transition points and abilities to adapt than this very rigid hierarchical almost right. vertical of like oh well you're just your your ladder is no longer your ladder's gone bye bye yeah, your ladder's gone now it's like oh i have this lily pad and got I'm making so many metaphors mixed up i'm sorry <laughs> listener i'm sorry this is how my brain works so now i have some node some some point in the web and then i can instead of being dependent on one ladder that may no longer exist because it's now totally automated, now I can pivot from this one spot in the in the web to another thing that's connected to it, even if it's in a different, you know, job or role, but it still leverages those same that same cocktail of KSAOs that I have. Is that the idea here? Yeah, that is. And uh so basically the tool that I was working on for a while that hopefully very soon will be open source and anyone can use it. It just basically creates a common language of how do we collect that KSAO data and then it gives you a tool to structure it um, along with other data and opportunities in your or- workplace or at a workforce level. Um, and so that was really important to me to do because I saw so many incredible entrepreneurs or people with not-for-profits or people doing government initiatives that everything they were trying to do was more difficult because of how labor data was structured. So a lot of the tools Mm -hmm. in this space, they rely upon labor data and labor data is just not structured for that kind of proactive shifting idea that is behind a lot of solutions people have in the future work. So I basically just thought is like people are not going to build as good of tools to solve this problem until somebody fixes this. So that's what I worked on for a long time throughout grad school. It was really fun. It's a horrible way to try to make money but it's something the world needs. So open source tool soon, hopefully. It's finalist for a grant. We'll see what happens. <laughs> All right. Finger, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. I, I love that. So and I, I think, you know, as I'm listening to you, I'm, I, I'm thinking about this issue a lot right now. In capitalism, there is a pattern that is predictable, which is that um, industrialization or commodification 
which automation is a force driving, um, unlocks new higher order systems. Meaning if you have automation, which is this, you know, this trend, this force now that is driving many, many roles, sorry, many activities, the activities <laughs> that make up many roles today. I'm mm-hmm. trying to use the right terms here. So there are many activities that largely compose jobs today that are going to be automated. So they're going to become effectively commodities that are no longer um, worth having a human do because you can have a, a machine do it for far cheaper, more reliably, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's the scary bit, right? That that scares people's identity and sense of where they are and what they can bring to the world. The pattern, the underlying climactic pattern in capitalism, though, is that that type of thing now unlocks new higher order systems that like now you can do new things because of that that you couldn't mm-hmm. do before. And so it seems like really what there is is helping people navigate the transition from that lower order work they were doing to the new higher order work that is now on the that is now on the menu because the thing they used to spend their time doing they don't have to do anymore. Right. And that's honestly I think most future work companies are navigation companies. Like that's what we're working on in different domains. Um, and you even see a lot of future work companies using words like the GPS of work in their marketing and stuff. And I think mm. that yep. makes sense. Uh, like my company, for example, uh, we're, we're mostly interested in just how do we help people just see what they need to be learning? Like how do, how do we help people just see the direction they need to be going? Like that's a navigation, um, process as well. And we're, even though we're more focused on like the tangible, like how do we actually get people engaged in their jobs today? But even if we're thinking about long term tools that are focused more on like long term labor shifts, I think that's the same thing they're doing. Um, I also think one big piece and one area, if anyone's listening and they want to start a future work company, I think something that's missing is not like places to learn or like information to learn. It's actually connecting people with the right information. Uh, like I think we've seen that having endless access to information has not made us smarter. There's some sense making that needs to happen. There's some constraints around that of figuring out like what's actually the best use of my time right now. So I think there's a lot more we need to do around just pure learning and helping people focus on what learning makes the most sense for them. Um, I think that relates to kind of the story with the woman who ended up at, at that with that job that allowed her to take care of her grandkids. Um, I think that there's so much. Like there's so much that people could be doing for themselves that actually would be positive for them. But it's just how do we how do we connect people with that? How do we help people make sense of where to go and what's right for them and what's the next best step? One thing you definitely don't want to do if you're if you are a coal miner whose job just got disrupted, the last thing you want to do is invest time and money in learning something if it's not even going to be a good opportunity for you. So that's a that's mm-hmm. a paralyzing situation to find yourself in, especially if everyone in your community was a coal miner, your parents were coal miners. Like you don't know what you're supposed to be doing. Of course not. Like it it's it's scary. And so the more resources we have that do navigate people, I think that's going to help a lot with the transition. One question that I wanted to ask you is the question that where this came from in a conversation was what is it that actually makes a an experience, but particularly a work experience, engaging, uh, meaningful, mm-hmm. exciting, right? A, a lot of the things that that the show focuses on, and um, I've heard a lot of different takes on mm-hmm. this, and there's many many models out there, right? You've got self determination theory, you've got um, Rosabeth Moss Cantor's work, you've got you know the autonomy mastery purpose stuff. There, there's a lot, of, you know, there's kind of some general mm-hmm. agreement around the underlying psychological needs that need to be fulfilled. I'm going to use the abbreviation RAMP, which I'm stealing blatantly from 15.5, which is Relatedness, (laughs) Autonomy, Mastery, and Purpose. Uh, Check out their stuff. It's really good. I'll link to it in the show notes. But um, 
popping up a level in terms of actual, you know, putting that into action yeah. and what do you actually focus on? The model that we've been playing with is is what we're calling what I what we've been loosely calling the arm model. Like you have an oh. arm and an ARM. And so uh, basically, the A is activities, okay. uh, R is relationships, and M is mission or meaning. I love that. And so love the idea so. being that the things that make a work experience fulfilling are first and foremost, what are you literally, what are you doing all day? The activities you're doing and mm-hmm. do you enjoy them? Can you get into flow in them? Um, are, you know, are they things you want to do all day, basically? Uh, secondly is... Who are you spending your time with and what is that environment like? So that's sort of relationships of your coworkers uh, as well as culture, the cultural environment you're doing it in. Uh, and then the third one is is sort of what is where's this all going, right? Which is sort of the meaning, the mission. Um, you know, if we're successful, does it do I feel good about that? Um, so that's a super simplistic model that I've been playing with. And I'm just curious, like as an actual expert who knows what's up, not me, what do you think about that? And how would you modify that? I think I remember you sharing that with me when we had dinner recently. At that very good restaurant. Should I give the... Oh, yeah. That was a good restaurant. Um, what was the place again? Duck, Duck, Goat. For anyone who oh, yes. dropped by Duck, Duck, Goat. There you go. Super yummy. Super, nice super yummy. Um, very good Chinese food. Yes. And lots of vegetarian options, despite the name for all the veg heads. True. We did not... Yeah, we, we, we ate veggie that night. It was very good. Okay. Anyways, back okay. to this. <laughs> so I love the model. I think it's actually... I, I love how simple it is. And I actually think there's a lot of truth to it. The piece that I think I'm obsessed with right now, I would put as a foundational piece beneath that, which is just self-insight. And that that has become my obsession lately because every time I look at models of how to get people engaged at work, models of how to get people to learn, models of how to help people navigate change, models to make people future ready, I keep coming back to you first have to have some level of self-awareness, some self-insight, some ability to create a concept of yourself, an identity. Um, mm-hmm. Everyone, like we all are the protagonist in our own story. And I think we really forget that when we're trying to make people engaged at work or when we're trying to help people feel fulfilled at work. I think we really forget that people are the own, their own protagonist. Um, and so I would put that under that, and then I love the model. <laughs> no, I, I, this is great. I love this. So let's if let's take let's take a couple of minutes and actually do a. Well, we're going to put me in the hot seat for a second. Oh. We're going to turn the tables here because this is always That's interesting fun. and fun, and this will also make it concrete for the listener. Uh, and plus, I'm just curious, so we're going to do it anyway. Um, so. I am going through this process right now where, uh, like you said, underneath all of this is sort of self-insight. And I think like a lot of people, um, I, I mean, well, I, I've had the, the good fortune to have access to a lot of uh, tools, assessments, uh, mechanisms, whatever you want to call it for self-insight, right? So psychometric tests, things like that. <laughs> and I'll tell you the place I'm at right now is I am... I, I have this giant pile of data, ostensibly useful information about myself, and I have no idea what to do with all of it. Yeah. And so I'm literally looking at a note on the other side of my screen right here where I'm trying to compile all this stuff and synthesize it into something useful. And I'm like, I'll tell you some of the things that are in here. There's the VIA character strengths test. There's um, the DISC assessment, the Colby assessment, uh, strengths finder, strength-based leadership, big five personality, the imperative purpose tool, uh, spark type, um, Enneagram, uh, genius, uh, genius hat. Like, there's all this stuff, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, I've got like 15 of these things. So, 
And I know, because I've had other people talk to me about this, that I'm not the only person who's crazy in this way. So what do crazy people like me do in a situation like this? Well, first of all, thank you for helping keep the lights on for all of us psychometricians out there. It's very kind of you to personally bankroll our lifestyles. Um, I do my best. Appreciate it. $12 at a time. (laughs) That is honestly part of why we created Anthill, because... I think there is so much beauty in compiling a lot of different insights. I think there's a lot we can learn from each of those, but I think it can become a mess without some kind of sense making that brings it all together. And so Mm -hmm. I think anytime you're working on learning all of that about yourself, there's only Mm -hmm. so much that's digestible for us at any specific time point. And I I think we have this desire to get to like, what's the most important thing. And with a tool like Anthill, you can, I believe, but when it's you, I would just say pick some look for a theme. Humans are great sense makers. That's one of the, I think, most difficult to automate skills. Look for a theme and just nudge yourself with it continuously. Get a, like a nameplate but that people used to have on desks in like the 80s mm-hmm. and just write the word. Like maybe you need to be a better listener, which you don't. You're an incredible listener. I should be a better listener. So you could listen and just look at it every day. That is how you would actually get the most out of those. I think the biggest problem is that we come up with like these like this massive strategy of character change and all these things we're going to work on when really like we're going to do best if we find an important thing and we give ourselves just a micro dose reminder um, that we focus on. So I, I think, you know, every year I choose a word of the year, um, mm-hmm. which a lot of people have started to do. I've done it since I was a little girl. I don't know when it became a trend, but it helps me so much because it's so simple. And it's one of those things that in those moments when you are your lowest self, you're so below the line, you're, you know, you're hungry, you're tired, you're frustrated, you can still bring a word to mind. It's hard to bring like a whole picture of everything you want to work on and everything you are to mind, but you can bring one word to mind. You always can. And so that's what I try to always encourage people who are like you, one of those self-improvement ninjas who's focused on everything is just try to synthesize it down to one thing. And then as soon as that feels embedded in who you are, move on. And that's really what nudging technologies like Ant Hill are, are focused on automating, but it's something you can do for yourself in that way with all the tests you have. But I know you, you're, you're going to want the best thing. So you're going to, you're going to kill yourself trying to figure out which thing you should focus on, but just pick one, just pick one. Okay. That's, I'm very glad you said that. And thank you for the advice. I will listen to that yeah. advice and take it. So you're telling me that basically I built a crappy version of Ant Hill in my notes. You built, yeah. You built like part of it, but you didn't, yeah, you made it way too complicated, but that's okay. That's okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So when can I use actual anthill? Uh, we might throw a bone your way. We're working only with companies right now, um, but we do. We would like to have uh, a user-facing version um, out eventually. So I'll keep you posted. Well, you know I'm a nerd for this stuff. So if you want to beta yeah. user person, I'll let you run, give me I'll let you run some tests. Why not? Okay. Anything for you. Andrew. All right. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> uh, you're the best. You're, you're too kind. Okay. So, um, okay. So that's, I'm glad we covered that. Thank you. Uh, cause I honestly, I've been not only making myself crazy with this, yeah. uh, but also uh, for some reason, a lot of people I know are in a similar place right now. And this has just been coming up a lot lately where people are, uh, bringing up these questions and they're saying like, what do I do with this information? Right. I have too much information going to sense making. Like you're talking about, like I have the Colby and the strength finder and the, this and the, that, and like, I don't know what to do with all of it. So yeah. it sounds like the takeaway is boil it down, pick one thing at a time, work on that and keep, keep, you know, stick consistently with that one thing until it's normal for you and then pick another yeah. one or use anthill. Either okay. way. 
Or use anthill. I mean, <laughs> hey, as soon as it's available, I think the people who are interested in this topic are going to use it. I will use it. Yeah. Um, it's been it's so been, there we go. Yeah, it's it's been such a fun thing to work on, just because I'm like you. I I also really enjoy these, um, and a lot of and it's most personality types are very drawn to something that helps them learn about themselves. That's very rewarding for us. Um, there's a healthy level of narcissism that we all have, um, and so I think. I think it can be really fun to learn about yourself. And I think the more that we look at it as like, I'm on this fun journey. I'm running this experiment on how to be a better person, like, and just take a little of the pressure off and be like, if there's just one thing I'm focusing on, that's, that's a lot. Like, think like life is long. Like give yourself a little bit of a break and just give yourself one thing. You can't, you can't do it all in a day. Very good advice for, for people like me to hear. So thank you. <laughs> Uh, here's a different question. And this is one that, that also came up as I was talking to people in my life, getting ready for this conversation over the last few weeks. We have so many problems in the world, right? And we're, we're perhaps more aware of the problems that we have than we ever have before. Thank you, you know, to media and the internet and communications technology. So maybe we have just as many problems, maybe we have new problems, whatever, but it's in all of our faces. And the question is, why ought someone work on this issue, like the future of work relative to so many of the other pressing problems, like for example, the climate crisis, or you know, the food system, or diversifying. You know, pick pick your pick your thing here. Oh, okay. I feel really passionate about this, actually. So, as okay, someone great. who has spent years measuring individual differences on so many metrics, I can tell, I can assure you that there is someone out there for every problem. There is someone that's going to be fired up about every problem and like voraciously trying to solve it if they're mm -hmm. living their best life. So I would mm -hmm. not worry about any shoulds. I would actually do the thing that fires you up. Trust me, there are lots of different people out there. We are not all Andrew Scottsko, sadly. And so Thank God. like, pick the thing that you actually are going to identify with. If we don't identify with something, as I've said, this whole podcast, we are not engaged with it. We do not need a bunch mm -hmm. of climate scientists who aren't excited to be climate scientists. That's not going to help. Um, so I think practically when you are, if you're raising children, if you are mentoring someone, if you are closely connected with anyone's development as a friend, a partner, whatever, encourage that person to be fully themselves as much as possible, push everyone in the direction of their own true North, and then get busy doing the thing you're actually excited about. I think that's wonderful advice. How do you actually, how, when you advise people about that, how do you advise that they go about that because there's a lot of advice about how to you know quote find your purpose find your true north find your whatever you want to call it how do you how have you done it and how have you seen that be effective when you've advised people it's a it's a process um i one of the rules i so i have a group of uh, young female scientists uh that I, i've mentored for a while um and a lot of times they come to me and they would say like okay i'm thinking about quitting my job i'm not fulfilled and I would always ask them like, Oh, what's the bigger? Yes. Like, what are you, what's mm. your big yes that you're going toward? And they'd be like, no, no, I just don't like my job. And I'd be like, Oh, so what's the thing that you're going to do now? And they'd be like, no, I just don't like my job. And it's, and I totally think there's a time and place to quit a job, to quit a job. I've done it. Um, I get that, you know, our mental health is paramount and you've got to protect that at all costs. But I think sometimes we get so trapped in this idea of like focusing on what we're not liking in a situation. And then we have this mm -hmm. ambiguous fantasy that we're heading toward where instead I really encourage people when they're in painful situations to actually sit in that and see what 
is a contrast to that. I actually think some of our best times of figuring out what we care about is in seasons that are a little painful. And I think that Mm -hmm. too often in this discussion, we are encouraging people to run away from pain. And I, I will tell you in my life, all of the best things that have ever happened in terms of clarity for me or direction for me have come out of a lot of pain and a lot of stuckness. And I think we need to embrace that a little bit more than we do. Um, but also protect your mental health in the, in the process is my caveat there. So until you have a bigger yes, I actually encourage people to sit in the discomfort. I think it's an incredible motivator. I think it's very hard to go from good to amazing. I think it's a lot easier to go from painful to amazing. Um, and so that's what I mostly encourage. I think. Is that just because of like the relative difference is bigger? Like going from something that's terrible to something that's good feels amazing? I mean, I just think of principles of human motivation. Um, we're, we're difficult creatures to motivate. Uh, we get very comfortable very easily. And we're, typically we're not actually motivated to go after something great. We're just motivated to, to relieve pain. Yeah. I just think it's a better place to come from finding your purpose. That's why I think some of the people I am most inspired by have had the most difficult backgrounds. I mean, people who have been abused. I, one person I really admire what they've done. You'd never know it getting to know them. They were trafficked as a child. Um, people who grew up in poverty, wow. people who have come from countries where you would never expect them to have access to the kind of education they were able to get for themselves. Um, I mean, there's, I think that's we see that overcoming a lot because of that principle of motivation. This is such a fascinating thing. And it reminds me of some of the conversations that, that you and I had and that also went on in the larger group when you and I were both fellows at, at Singularity U together a couple of years back. Um, and one of the questions that I remember came up that I don't think ever really a clear answer emerged, but I'm curious if you have a, an updated take. As you said, many people have had to overcome some tremendous difficulties and challenges in their life. And we find that very inspiring, right? They've had to overcome trafficking or lack of education or opportunity or, you know, whatever the, whatever the case may be. Um, and that is inspiring. And also, you know, there's a lot of difficulty there and, and, um, you wish that people didn't have to do that. But for people who haven't, ironically, for, for people who haven't had that challenge, sometimes it seems like they are the most lacking in directionality in, in a sense of, purpose because they haven't had that thing that happened to them that they had to overcome and that gave them that sense of meaning. For people like that, what do you, what have you seen to be effective in terms of them tapping into this this sense? Yeah, I it gets back to something we talked about earlier, which I encourage them to break a routine. Um, I think a lot of times... It, so you can have kind of your mirror neurons work pretty well. We can experience something through someone else's experience. And I think exposing yourself to more things. I think the people who have it the toughest in life from a psychological perspective are the people who had a really easy, cushy life and they've only ever hung out with people just like them. I think that's a really sad way to live. And then you've probably met people like that. There's no real, there's no real lows. There's no real highs. They're just kind of bopping along. Um, I think the only way to break that is to get out of your routine break your routine, um, do something that feels markedly uncomfortable for you and different for you. But you have to, that's a personal choice that you have to make. Right. You got to mix it up. Yeah. But we all have our, you know, we all have things that work for us and things that work against us. We all come with a constellation of advantages and disadvantages, some way more privileged than others. Um, but I would argue that even some of the things that we think of as like, oh, that person should have it figured out. They have every privilege you could possibly have. 
those people don't always make it happen. Um, and I think it comes back to, to what we're talking about now. I think there's, there's a challenge component that is critical for growth. I think that if we had an equation for growth, like whatever is in that equation would have to be multiplied by challenge. And if challenge is zero, I, I don't think you're ever going to grow. You mentioned way back in the beginning, um, you're writing a book. Yes, but that is still, what's the book? That is still so under wrap. We don't even have our working title. But I have two, That's fine, but what's it about? two awesome co-authors. Uh, one is an academic and one is an executive at a large uh, tech company. Um, and we're, we're all from, we're from three different generations, uh, bringing a few different perspectives, talking about the future of communication. Um, and we have this model we've developed of basically kind of getting back to what I was talking about in the, in the very beginning, as you said, of how do we, um, actually start to understand each other. Um, as we're navigating all of this incredible change and this pace of change, it will never be more important for us to really understand each other and to be just really competent communicators with one another and to start to even relieve some of each other's suffering through giving each other a chance to be understood. Um, so we're, we're writing it in a really fun way. It's kind of a big story. We were profiling a lot of people that we worked with, world leaders, executives, some some characters all throughout um, to kind of make a point. We hope it mostly just reads like a fun behind the curtains peek into a lot of really interesting lives. Um, but there's a model throughout there that we think is really an important model for anyone um, going into the future, the future of work. So we're excited about it. Yeah. I love it. Do you guys have a target? Uh, did you just start or where are you in the process? Yeah, well, so we have been for a long time talking about these ideas kind of, um, yeah, collaborating, but we are now finally shifting into making it real uh, with the deal and agents and all that fun jazz. So, yeah. That's so exciting. Good for you. Good for you. Congratulations. I cannot wait to read it. Again, if you want uh, early readers or drafts or anything like that, I'd be stoked to, uh, to, to get early access to your thinking. So one question is, what is something in um, recent memory, and that could be the last week or it could be the last, you know, two years, what is a change that you've made in your life that you think has had an outsized impact on either the quality of your life, your effectiveness, whatever the case may be, but small change, big impact. Oh, I think the biggest one for me is getting up an hour earlier and spending my first hour working on something that I'm super passionate about that it doesn't, no one else is expecting a deliverable from me on that thing. That has been huge for me. And sometimes I work on things that are very personal and sometimes I work on things that are actually just related to what I'm I'm working on. But to, it's kind of that with budgeting, that pay yourself first mentality. I just started doing that with my time and it just sets a tone for the day that is really awesome for me. Yeah. yeah. I love that because we were, we, uh, I think before we hit record, we were, we were talking about Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. And it reminds me of Charlie Munger's whole thing about sell yourself the first, your first and best hour of the yes, day. There we go. Yes. Is that where you got that Maybe, from? Maybe. I don't know. One of my favorite videos on YouTube is the one. It's a black and white video of Charlie Munger for 40 minutes just explaining mental models in a totally monotone voice and with mm-hmm. no illustrations, just reciting them. If anyone needs something to do on a Friday night, I highly recommend you check that out. So I don't know. I probably did get that inspiration from them and didn't realize. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, it's great. It's the, uh, I think it's his famous speech on the psychology of human misjudgment. Um, <clears throat> which also goes to the other book that's sitting on my desk right now, which I highly recommend. I'm, I'm nerding out on this right now, not done yet, but it's called, uh, Seeking Wisdom Ooh. from Darwin to Munger. And it's written by a guy named Peter Bevelin. And this is one of these books that I've been meaning to read for years, but it's like a condensed, 
it's, I feel like this is one of those books where it's like if Charlie Munger, if you bottle, were able to bottle his brain up into something, this would be like part of that. I, yeah, um, I will check that out. So thank you. Unfortunately, there's no audio book. I wish there was, but uh, it's like one of those dense on. It's one of those books where I'm like, I'm going to be really glad I read this. I can tell. Yes, those are the best. You you have such a level of self awareness and and nuanced thinking. Who or what has so profoundly shaped your thinking? Oh, there's so many. And I mean, there's so many people who inspire me. It's it uh, it feels like unfair to try to encapsulate it. Um, or or maybe recently. I mean, every, like, honestly, let's say the last couple. Of years. I think actually, the broad answer is I. It's a very very rare person I come across that I don't immediately find a reason to be inspired by them. Like I actually think there is something really really incredible in everyone, and I think I I think I learned that from my dad. My dad has this deep appreciation for literally everyone, and I saw him live that way um, growing up, and. Yeah, it, I think that that's why it feels difficult to answer that question. Uh, outside impact recently, um, I was really, I think, profoundly touched by. I never, never got to meet her. Unfortunately, she passed away last year. By Mary Oliver, uh, I, I can be a bit too kind of in my head, cerebral, a little robotic sometimes, moving through, executing on all the objectives I have for myself. Um, so I intentionally started to insert into my life poetry and even dork. There we go. Also, even very dork. Andrew just showed me a mug <laughs> for anyone hearing my reaction. Um, so I, I started to be drawn to things like poetry and even I started, this is the dorkiest thing about me. I started doing needlepoint because I was like, okay, that's totally opposite from being in my head. I'm just working with my hands, stitching something for who knows what reason. Um, and, I think Mary Oliver, since I started reading her work, have you ever read anything by Mary Oliver? Oh, I highly recommend. So if you want to want to read some poetry, I highly recommend Devotions. Uh, that's a collection of a lot of her best works. Uh, there's one in particular on death that I'm going to send you right when we hang out because it's so beautiful. Uh, okay. Thank you. And then if you want to read some of her essays, uh, her book Upstream, I really, really love. There's... There's one essay in there about Emerson, who is one of the giants in my life, who I'm always inspired by, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Um, she, you have to be an incredible writer to write about Emerson because Emerson was such a good writer. But that essay that she wrote on Emerson, for some reason, it had such a deep impact on me. I highlight, yeah, check it out. But I think the reason I love Mary Oliver is that she has given me more of an appreciation for the little things around me, which I think I lost in kind of, mm. I think maybe getting a PhD kind of drove it out of me, kind of having a lot of work goals drove it out of me. But she's given me this appreciation again for little things and like this, this layer to life. And I think those are the people that I feel most inspired by. It's not necessarily even people in my field or people who I really respect intellectually. Sometimes it's the people that cause me to pause and think about something totally outside of what feels important to me at the time. I think those are the people I'm most inspired by lately. So that's a really long answer. I love that. Mary Oliver no, and crew at all. Mary Oliver and her yeah. homies. I love it. It's funny. As you were saying that, I was like, wait a minute, this sounds familiar because the, the third book on my desk is this book. It's called Poetry of Presence. Oh, right on. And it's a book I got at um, a meditation retreat I went on a few months ago. And uh, one of my favorite teachers there at the retreat uh, gave it to me. And uh, I was like, wow, this sounds so familiar. And I think I did hear a Mary Oliver poem when I was there. Right. 
because she read from this book. And so I'm gonna if, we're gonna we're gonna bring some Mary Oliver into this conversation oh, right now. So can I can I read you can I read you um, a Mary Oliver poem? So it's the poet the poem is called When I Am Among the Trees by Mary oh, Oliver. And it's short. So I know this. you know this one? You like this I one? don't, you I don't think it? I can recite the whole thing from memory, but probably close. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. So it says it goes when I am among the trees, especially the willows and the honey locust, equally the beech, the oaks, and the pines, they give off such hints of gladness. I would almost say that they save me and daily. I am so distant from the hope of myself in which I have goodness and discernment and never hurry through the world, but walk slowly and bow often. Around me, the trees stir in their leaves and call out, stay a while. The light flows from their branches and they call again. It's simple, they say, and you too have come into the world to do this, to go easy, to be filled with light and to shine. Oh, I love that. That's so good. That's so good. It's so good. Yeah. One of her, um, one of her most famous lines, it's at the end of a poem, a, quite a, a beautiful one that you should read, um, is she says, listen, are you breathing just a little and calling it a life? And I think that Ooh. is a good future of work poem because I do think that there there is a lot right now in workplaces that is breathing just a little and calling it a life. I feel like that has got to be that is the perfect place to end this conversation. <laughs> I mean, that's a mic drop moment right there. I tell you to drop the mic, but it's a headset you're I'll wearing. Drop, <laughs> <laughs> drop, drop it afterwards. <laughs> Well, Muriel, thank you so, so much for this conversation, for sharing yourself and also for everything you're doing in the world. You're someone who inspires me. And uh, it's been, you know, obviously it's a privilege to have you on, on the show. And um, I'm just grateful for, for you having you in my life as a friend as well. So thank you, first of all. Um, and where can the listener, if people want to engage with you and your work, where would you, where would you send them? Yeah, I, I would check out anthillai.com. We're going to have a lot more coming up there soon in terms of resources. We just went live recently. Um, and then anyone who wants to actually chat with me, if you heard me say anything that you want to get involved with, uh, I'm always open to hearing from anyone at Muriel at anthillai.com. Okay. I love it. And uh, last question, is there any, any requests you have the listener or anything you want to leave us with? Please, please, please make, make understanding yourself and what you really need from life a priority and learn how to competently communicate that to the people in your life. I think the more people who do that, the better this world will be. That's beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Muriel, again, thank you so much. This has been uh, an absolute pleasure and I'm super excited for what you're doing. Keep it yeah, up. Yeah. Thank you. Thank It's so much fun to talk to you always. So thanks for having this great show too. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us reach way more people and build this community up. For show notes, links to the resources, and everything else we discussed, please go to enliven.fm. Feel free to reach out with questions, feedback, or just to say hello by emailing connect at enliven.fm. Be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. We'll see you soon.